Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 62, the passage before us. My son uh, seeks to be physically fit. Some of you have known him through the years. And one of the things that works for him at this stage in his life is that he has a membership at Planet Fitness. I know a couple of you do too. Um, his particular membership allows him to invite a guest. And um, he has a membership where you can go to any city that has a Planet, mem- uh, Planet Fitness and he can go in as a member. And so he does that. It's, it's amazing that he, I'm amazed that he can travel to another city uh, with a band and he can find a way to get to Planet Fitness. Sometimes he takes Uber, sometimes he gets a driver from the venue, sometimes he can walk and he has another bandmate that goes with him. And he's really faithful at this. I'm so impressed. When he comes to Eau Claire to visit us, he nearly goes every day to Planet Fitness. And for years, he's been asking me to go with him. And I deny him continually. But at Christmas time, I said, okay, I will go. Because kind of, the truth is, going to Planet Fitness is kind of his love language. You know, quality time, that's what he views as quality time, is working out with dad kind of thing. And so um, I went with him, and it wasn't so bad. I went a couple times, it wasn't so bad. I was his guest. I didn't mind that at all. So when January rolled around and Planet Fitness had their special, I got a year's membership. And it worked out pretty well. A couple of times I went with Sue. A couple of times I got up early and went before work and actually showered there, you know, and then went to work. That was kind of be my plan for the year. And then, uh, you know, stuff happens. Have a bad cold, had some serious knee issues for a while, kind of just dropped out. Um, And the interesting thing is, that's what happens with millions of other Americans. They come into January for a lot of different reasons, and they have so many good intentions about why they have a new plan for their life, and, um, you know, that they're going to join a health club, and by the way, that's one of the most important ways that health clubs make money, is by those people who sign up in January who are gone by April. 40% of the people who sign up are gone by April uh, to a membership. And uh, they see an increase in January, up to 50% of increase in attendance in in January. Um, So, you know, if if it makes you feel any better, I, I, I have gone back. But I had this huge layoff of several months You know, wanting to be healthy and pursue physical fitness are really worthy goals. But it's just about follow-through, isn't it? You know, I don't know if you've ever, you know, tried to diet or tried, I'm going to do these things to be physically fit and really good intentions, but it's really hard to follow through. And uh, that's what I've found. And I've also found that this is the same thing that happens to my spiritual life. I can have really good intentions. I can want to start a new plan. I want, to, I want to do these things to spend more time with God. I want to write in my journal. I want to uh, focus on this in Bible study. I have really good intentions. And I may go through some of those things, and I go through the motions sometimes, 
And uh, sometimes I'm, I'm really too busy, I think, and I don't find as much time. And I find that I can lose my focus. And um, I think that happens to a lot of us too sometimes. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. The key is about follow through. The key is about I need to live out the commitment that I make, the commitment that I have. And that's what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 9, is about living out our commitment. And one of the things in Luke 9 that Jesus is going to focus on is to follow Jesus can be a very difficult path. And um, it's going to require follow through. So on your outline, verses 46 through 50, I want to encourage you to follow along. Following Jesus requires intentional humility. It requires intentional humility. And let me just read to us, and we can see uh, those verses together, verses 46 uh, through uh, 50. And beginning in verse uh, 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. First, we start with verse 46, an argument. An argument started among the disciples to which of them was the greatest. And uh, this was about their self-identity. This is about who they're becoming. This is about how valuable are they? Which of them? You know, there's competitive spirit. Which of them will be the greatest? And uh, let's just uh, put this in context. What's been happening in Luke's story as he's developed it. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, has displayed that he is the Messiah of God. He is the Holy One. He is the Promised One. He is the one that the Old Testament prophets have looked forward to. Um, He has announced the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's because Messiah is present. That's because the King is present, the Promised One. He has demonstrated power and authority in healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead and feeding 5,000 people and calming the storm. Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 9, gave his power and authority to his disciples. This would have been a little bit heady to be able to begin to do the things that he did to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand and have people respond and being interested. To be able to heal somebody from a disease. To be able to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus Christ and to see the power of God displayed. Those would have been some pretty significant experiences for their spiritual lives. And they sort of began to talk among themselves. Remember Peter, James, and John? They, Jesus called them apart to be special, to go with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we call the mountain. That's where he was transfigured. That's where he was changed. And the glory of God 
from the inside out was displayed. And, and Jesus uh, shined brightly. In the Old Testament, we have the Shekinah glory. It's very bright, very brilliant, a manifestation of God's presence. And it's like a little snapshot of God's presence being displayed through Jesus' physical body. Along with Jesus on this mountain appeared Elijah and Moses, you remember that, and they were discussing with Jesus about his exodus, about his departure. And so Peter, James, and John got to experience that. Remember there was a voice from heaven, this is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him. Peter, James, and John got to hear that. And now they're back with the other disciples. Guys, who do you think is the greatest? Well, it's got to be Peter, James, and John, right? Who's the greatest? And there's sort of a debate going on, an argument with the disciples. And, you know, Jesus has been teaching, he's been modeling, he's been displaying to them who he is. And they got wrapped up in themselves. Um, The disciples' lives have changed drastically, and now the disciples' heads are getting too big for their little bodies. And Jesus wants to give them an illustration in verse 47. He steps in. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knows what they're thinking. He took a little child and had him stand beside him. Uh, children around Jesus quite a bit, and he, and he used them, and there are different stories around children and, and what the point of the story, but there's one point to this one. He took a little child and had him stand beside him. Um, and then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Jesus wants them to understand an important lesson. This little child is important. And, you know, in the first century, uh, you know, children didn't have rights. And ch the, uh, children are viewed as sometimes uh, throwaways and not necessarily exactly the same in Jewish culture, but in Gentile culture, in some cases that was true. But children were just like, stay out of the way. Because it's the adults are important, and sadly, it was even the men who seemed to be more important. And uh, Jesus wants them to know that this child is important. In fact, this child is as important as you, Peter, James, and John. You are the 12 disciples. You are the ones whom I have chosen. But this child is just as important in the kingdom of God as you are. And the point in verse 48, for it is the one who is least among you all, the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Greatness is going to be about humility. It's about not thinking yourself as too important. It's about appreciating what God has done for you and what God has given you and being humble. He's saying, guys, don't be full of yourselves. Be humble. Make this child and others who are in need as important as yourselves. Because a child uh, needs others 
to depend on others for survival and for growth. Um, and that would be especially important in the first century, just as it is today. Uh, problem in verse 49, this is kind of humorous. Master, said John. This is John. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and who wrote the book of the Revelation. You know, by, by 95 AD, John has an awesome picture of God. But uh, this is the early days. And he said, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. This is like John's changing the subject. Jesus is using this child to teach them to be humble, and John was sort of like changing the subject. Well, Master, let's tell, let's, let me tell you what we've done that's good. And so he says, you know, there's a guy over there. He's trying to do, the, do our work, and we tried to stop him. How's that? And um, that doesn't really please Jesus much. Um, we don't know the details here. Probably, when you think about this, this is somebody who had listened to Jesus, who had heard him teach about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. Um, this is someone who may have been baptized as a follower of Christ. Uh, this is someone who watched Jesus perhaps heal people or cast out demons. He maybe even saw the disciples do it in the name of Jesus. If, if they can do it in the name of Jesus, can I do it in the name of Jesus? And not only that, he did. He did cast out demons in the name of Jesus, representing Jesus Christ. And the disciples are worried about, what well, he's not one of us. He is not in our denomination. And they think they're protecting Jesus, you know? And Jesus is just going to make this uh, very clear. Verse 50, the principle, do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now, you know, we, have, we, we want to make a principle like this for all things. And Jesus is talking about this case. And the idea is here is somebody doing good, somebody who is doing a battle against evil and is successful in the name of Jesus Christ, Guys, he's for us. He's on our team. He's on our side. Don't make him your enemy. And um, he's saying, stop being critical of others who are doing kingdom work. Stop being exclusive. But Jesus wants his followers to have an attitude of graciousness to those who may do things differently than we do. This is so important for us today. Because, you know, we can have a tendency to think, well, they don't do it our way. We don't like their worship services. Or we don't like their sermons. Or they don't know how to do this. You know, we have a tendency to be critical of others who are doing work for God. And Jesus' attitude is, he's very gracious about it. And that's what he wants his followers. What are we for? Not what we are against. And so Jesus says, do not stop him. Do not stop someone who is defeating evil. Do not stop someone who is working for kingdom goals. Secondly, the road to follow Jesus encounters constant opposition. And we're going to see this in 51 through 56. 
And we see Jesus' focus in 51 as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is going to be a huge turn. You're going to see it in Jesus' attitude, a huge turn in Luke's development of the life of Jesus Christ. As time approached, God had a plan. God always had a plan for Jesus. Jesus always understood the steps he was taking, and this was a major change in his focus. As the time approached him to be taken up, he just talked to Moses and Elijah on the mountain about his exodus. And now the time approached to be taken up to heaven. Jesus is going to return back to the Father. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is what he'd been trying to tell his disciples. Remember, he predicted his death and how he would suffer at the hands of the leaders of Israel. And then he would would be uh, killed and then he would be raised again on the third day. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. This is where it's going to happen. Jesus knows exactly, and he has to take the road to Jerusalem. And uh, he is very focused, and he knows to accomplish God's will, he must go on this very difficult road. And so let's see the road on the map. So... uh, His focus has been uh, the north side of Galilee recently. He's been in Capernaum. And he's got to go to Jerusalem, so almost straight south. And uh, this is one way to go. And it takes him through Samaria. So, um, and by the way, you know, they just didn't build roads like we build roads. Roads were made where there was a natural way to get through. You know, you couldn't cross a big river because they didn't make big bridges. And they didn't go over mountains easily. And so they were looking for a pass. They were looking for ways to get through. And that's how roads were developed. They're, they're called highways, but there are ancient roads that go back, and they go through Israel. They go back hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Um. So Jesus is now resolute. Jesus has follow-through. Jesus will be totally committed to the Father's will. But first he has some opposition, verses 52 and 53. And the opposition comes from without. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. So um, he has to go through Samaria By the way, a lot of you know that uh, Samaria, there was a great uh, struggle between um, the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. They were both from the land of Israel. Um, This goes back hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And... um, the, Samar- uh, the Jewish people thought that they were better. They thought that they were superior. They thought that they had the correct and appropriate religious way, the way that God wants them to worship. The Samaritans had created a different way. 
And the Samaritans were viewed as heretics by the Jewish people. There were a lot of reasons for this in history, how that all developed. But the point is, they really didn't like each other. And so in, let's uh, have a look at a map. So in the first, uh, by the time of Jesus, somebody from Galilee, the northern part of Israel, could go straight through, and, and they could traverse through Samaria in one day. But they weren't welcome there. They just kept moving. What a lot of Jewish people did, and especially religious leaders, when they wanted to go to north to south, they went way around Samaria, and it took three days instead of one day. That's how big a deal this was. So Jesus is headed south, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he sends messengers on ahead of him. Now, he had been in Samaria, remember the woman at the well? He had been received well early in ministry in one village. This is not the same village. Verse 53, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. This was not about Jesus. We don't like you, Jesus. This was about Jesus, you're a Jewish man, and there are 12 other Jewish men here, and they're all going to Jerusalem to worship. You are not welcome here. So that's some of the opposition that Jesus faced. He wasn't welcome everywhere. Verses 54 through 56. And this is, Jesus is just focused on getting to accomplish what he knows is ahead, and it's going to be suffering. Verses 54 through 56, opposition from within. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, here they go. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? You know, we're feeling pretty good here, Lord. You've given us power and authority. We know you can, we can do whatever you want us to do. Would you like us to take care of this for you? We will burn their socks off. And, you know, that's kind of a human response, isn't it? To, to, to get back at people, to retaliate, to have revenge, to make them feel the burn, literally. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Jesus corrected them swiftly. They apparently had missed that Jesus came to save the world and not to judge the world. Because what they wanted to do was to bring a final judgment on these people immediately. Just like Elijah did in the Old Testament. And call down fire from heaven. Let's do this. And that's not what Jesus came for. He came to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to bring judgment. Let us not forget that there will be a judgment, and he will come for that. And when he returns, it's for judgment. It's not to save. And that's why we're here today, because this is a time of grace when God wants us to communicate good news. He wants us to be good news. He wants us to show compassion and grace and humility toward people. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. So Jesus didn't, you know, power up and try to say who he was, and you don't know who you're talking to here. Jesus, okay, we have a bigger priority. We're going to go to another community uh, where we will be better received. 
Okay, number three, verses 57 through 62, the road to follow Jesus demands total commitment. This is where we've been moving. So now we have a snapshot here from three encounters with Jesus. The first is just a man walking along the road. Verse uh, 57, 58, follower number one. As they were walking along the road, a man said, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, that, that's pretty impressive. This guy is saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm on your team. I want to be whatever you want me to be. So here I am. And you would think Jesus would say, hey, great. Come along with us. Glad you're here. Verse 58, Jesus replied, foxes have dens, bird have nests, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He is going to Jerusalem, and he will die there. And his disciples will face their first persecution, serious persecution there. And he's saying, guys, I don't have a two-story house and a white picket fence and a 401k and I'm never going to. I don't have a place. Animals have places to go to rest. I do not. So we don't know what happened. We don't know the whole circumstances. We don't know if this guy attached himself later or what he did. But we know that Jesus did not make this easy. Follower number two, verses 59 through 60. He said to another man, so Jesus now gives an invitation Follow me. But he, the man, replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. The man is kind of interested in the request, but Lord, first, I have another priority. I need to go bury my father. And Jesus sounds uh, unloving, unkind by Jesus. Um, the guy's interested. He wants to bury his father. Gee, that seems like a really good reason. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Seems harsh. Not sympathetic. But we don't know what Jesus knew about the situation. We, just, we have very little. We just see that Jesus is making this difficult for people to follow. We don't know the man's story. Uh, some look at this and say, well, probably the, if the guy is there, his father's not dead because he should be taking care of the father's funeral arrangements or should be at, with the family, not with Jesus right now. Maybe that's the case. Uh, some think his father is not dead and he wants to go home because he knows his father is elderly and he's dying and you know that's going to take some time and there's going to be a long mourning period, we don't know. And some would say, well, maybe it was that this man uh, was wanted to go home for the inheritance, and he needed, and Jesus knew that, and, and you know, there, he had to go home and do all these things, and then one day his father's stuff would be his stuff, and then he would have the money. We don't know that. We just don't know. In any case, Jesus is clear. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
For Jesus, there is no earthly priority ahead of his priorities. For Jesus, family does not come first. Jesus comes first. His kingdom comes first, not family. And this is really hard for us to hear. This is hard for the American church because the American church has waffled all over about families. They came back and focused on the families and developed families. And, and now at times, I almost see in the Christian culture where families are elevated, I take care of my family, then I do Christian stuff. I don't care what you call Christian stuff, but make Jesus number one. Make Jesus number one. I just think it's real easy for our culture, our Christian culture, to get confused about God and family priorities. It's his kingdom first, our kingdom second. Follower number three, verses 61 and 62. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. Here's another, I'm all in. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Guys, that sounds like a reasonable request. He just wants to say goodbye. But Jesus does not seem to be sympathetic. Again, we don't know the details. We don't know the outcome. Jesus replied, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You know, and he's, he uses a, an illustration for the first century of farming. And a farmer, if he was to plow his field, he would, he would do it with an oxen, and he would have this wooden plow, and it, it would be pretty crude. But he, when he was plowing, he needed to have a course, and, and if he was going to have a straight furrow. He, had, he needed a point of reference and he needed to keep focused and he needed to follow that because as soon as he turned around, as soon as he would look back, he would lose his focus. Now, I don't think plowing is the most important thing in the world, but Jesus likened that to following Christ and he's saying, need to stay focused. Need to stay focused. And uh, his priorities, ahead of our priorities. Okay. Some hard things. Okay, we have uh, three lessons. Number one, Jesus wants his followers to be humble toward all people. And this was his message to his disciples. They were filled with pride and worried about who was the greatest. And that may not be a question you've really ever asked, are you the greatest? But it's pretty easy to start thinking you're better than some people and to measure yourself against some people. And I'm not as bad as such and such. And I do this better, and we have this, and they don't. And we begin to compare our, ourselves. And Jesus wants us to have this attitude of being humble, of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that's the key. It's this attitude. It's humility. Same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's the picture. And who, being in the very nature of God, did not 
consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So he was God, and he could have said, hey, guys, I'm God. Listen up. But he didn't, he didn't live that way. He didn't operate that way. Next slide. Rather, he made himself nothing by be, being taken the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. You know, he came to this earth as an infant. That's why we have Christmas. And how humbling is that for the God of the universe to need diapers, need to be burped, you know, need to have somebody feed him all the time. And, and just he had to grow and develop just like all humans. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was one of the most humiliating things imaginable, death on a cross. It was totally embarrassing. It was viewed as a curse in the first century. And he was willing to do that. So do you consider yourself more important than some? Do you compare yourself with some? Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, he says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You've probably heard me use this verse on a lot of occasions. This one really grabs my attention. God is opposed to the proud. As soon as I get a little bit uppity in my attitude, I'm a little bit better than these people. I'm working against God. I'm moving against God. I'm move, trying to go upstream. And God's going to take everything downstream. And God is not a good person to have as your enemy. God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. I, life goes so much better with God's favor, grace. You know, when I need God to answer prayer and how do I experience favor? Well, I need to be humble with God, before God, with others. And um, whatever we do to have God's favor, he wants us to be humble. Uh, second lesson is this. Jesus wants his followers to practice grace, not judgment, toward others. So, like the disciples, Jesus doesn't, does not want us to call fire down from heaven. There are times that you would like to do that, I know. I know what temptation is like. But that's not what pleases Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to be exclusive. Like, our group is better than those other groups. He doesn't want us to criticize who don't do church the same way we do or whatever it is we do. Romans 12, 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So this whole thing about you know, judging other people or getting back at other people, withholding, being bitter toward other people. That's Jesus' job to be the judge as far as to bring righteousness and justice to the situation. It's not our job 
to practice judgment on others. Um, Paul goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Gee, that doesn't seem... If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about war and military and what does that mean if somebody's shooting at you. That's not what this is about. It's that person that you don't like and they don't like you. That's who he's talking about here. Thirdly, Jesus wants his followers to be totally committed to living for him. This, you know, this seems like a cliche. It's so easy to say. But Jesus was really, really serious. To have his priorities be our priorities. Um, Jesus never suggested that following him would be easy. His road is difficult. The road to discipleship is difficult. The road to follow him is difficult. Sometimes it's easy. Luke uh, 9, 23 and 24, this is a passage we already looked at a couple weeks back. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This is Jesus' road to Jerusalem. It's a difficult road. And he's saying, if you're going to follow you're going to need to deny yourself. There are going to be times that you need to say no to self. It's because life isn't about you. It's about him. There's a time to say no to self, to deny yourself, and to take up your cross daily. The idea is Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice, and our lives are to be given as a sacrifice. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy life. It doesn't mean we can't have fun. It's just his, you know, Jesus did a lot of things and spent quality time with a lot of people. But to take up our cross and, and a willingness to live sacrificially for him. Verse 24, if whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, Jesus, when we talk about discipleship, he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about how do we begin with God? How do we have, um, how do we get born again? How do we have our sins forgiven? That's how we start. But then there's follow. Follow the leader. It's a daily thing. It's one day at a time. So let's bring some balance back. We know Jesus is loving. He's merciful. He is kind and gentle. He's humble. He's powerful and all-wise. And that's why we worship him. He is God. And there's a whole lot of other things we can say about him. But we also must say he wants total commitment from us. He wants to be Lord. He wants to be number one. So I'm the first to tell you that we are not perfect people. I am not a perfect person. I fail. We fail as people. We make mistakes. We sin. We hurt other people. Today we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is a great time
get a fresh start, to get a do-over. Um, sometimes uh, when we fail, we just like to, oh, I feel so bad, I just want to quit, I wanna, I'm not good enough. Don't ever stop making commitments and recommitments to Jesus. When you fall down, get back up. Today, uh, in a time of communion, we're going to take bread and we're going to take the cup, a cup of grape juice. And the bread is a symbol of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was nailed to the cross. And the blood is the, the blood that was shed on that cross. Is, is this, or the cup is a symbol of the blood that was shed on that cross. And we are to remember his death. Uh, he was crucified for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And um, that's, that's good news, that he died for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life, so we could have the Holy Spirit to enable us and empower us so that we would become children of God. But when we come to the cross, it's a time when we take communion, it's a time to be humble before God and to remember this is what he's done for us. I want to live for you, God. I need your help. I don't do it perfectly. I need your help. So I'd like to uh, just take a couple of moments and we're going to have a time of silence and it's a time to think and a time to evaluate because we're to examine ourselves before we share in communion. And just uh, you talk to God privately and ask him are there anything is there are there things that he wants you to confess to him and just uh, ask for the forgiveness for those things let's bow right now gracious god we just pause before you and we humbly give you thanks for sending your son thank you that he would go to Jerusalem and he would die on a cross and he would pay for our sins. Thank you, God, for forgiving us. And may right now you just have the freedom to look into our hearts, to show us anything that's not pleasing to you, whether it might be pride, whether it might be that we're judgmental toward others at times, whether we fail in our commitment to you, whatever it is, God, may your spirit show us. May we be honest with you.